A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the Hilo, the weekly conversation between Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. Yoo-hoo, Dolly! Yoo-hoo! It's nice to see your face. Your face is cheering me up because this weekend was pretty disheartening for a lot of people when Boris Johnson did his much-awaited address in which he proposed his plan to ease us out of lockdown. Did you watch it live, Panda? I couldn't. I think like a lot of people, I'm just feeling too jittery to actually watch yeah. stuff on telly at the moment. It was, of course, in keeping with the rest of the government's actions in the last <laughs> three months. It was vague and unaccountable and irresponsible and confusing. The only clear party line I seem to have got from it in the days since is that it's definitely going to be OK to go to garden centres very soon. <laughs> That's the only, like, clear take-home I seem to have got. <laughs> I'd take a trip to home base, if I could. I'd take a trip anywhere right now, actually. <laughs> there was one silver lining, which was Matt Lucas's uncanny impression of him that I think I have watched now 300 times. So we are saying, don't go to work, go to work. Don't take public transport, go to work, don't go to work. Stay indoors. If you can work from home, go to work. Don't go to work. Go outside. Don't go outside, and uh, and then we will or won't uh, do something or other. I absolutely love that clip, and I really liked his discussion around it actually, because a few people said, you know, Matt, this is really serious. People are dying. This is not the time to be funny. And he said, yeah, I know seven people who have passed away, and until that stops happening, I'm going to make satire out of it in yeah. the hope that the message gets through that way. And I'm very much paraphrasing there. That's not a direct quote, but I think that was a really useful reminder of how um, kind of sharp and dark satire it's like satire is different to skidding on a banana (laughs) yeah and satire is connecting and informative and useful and is very different to what we would call being you know tone deaf or disrespectful the other response that I loved to the disastrous Boris Johnson address was from the comedian Jen Brister who wrote stay home go to work don't use public transport, walk if you can, conger if you can't, put your left leg in and your right leg out, drink heavily, moisturise, look both ways before masturbating, gammon goes best with pineapple, chinny reckon, hey Macarena, and remember, stay alert. (laughs) I think that tweet is genuinely like the contents of most people's brains. Just utter gobbledygook at this point, isn't it? (laughs) Totally. We have an author special coming up with the essayist Samantha Irby, who I rung up in Kalamazoo, Michigan, to talk about her new essay collection, Wow No Thank You. And my God, is she a tonic for what I am calling the right now. I can't call it unprecedented times anymore, Dolly. I just can't trot out that phrase anymore. So I'm calling it the right now. 
Yeah, good idea. But before that, I've got a fact about otters for you, Dolly, as I know you're always petitioning for the Hilo to become a sort of audio farthing wood. Please tell me, need it. Otters juggle when they're hungry. Oh my God, what do they juggle? I guess they must juggle pebbles. <laughs> I don't know, I was just, it seems obvious that it would be pebbles, no? Is it you who told me they also have to hold hands when they sleep? Yeah, they do. They sleep holding hands, oh, yeah. So Go- have you never Googled a picture? It used to be my screensaver, otters holding hands. Mm. That's exactly what I needed this morning, Panda. Thank you. I've got another strange lockdown sales stat for you. Or maybe not so strange. The sales of hot tubs have risen, like a bubble to the surface, by 480%. That's crazy. That's crazy. It is a bit crazy because I do understand why everyone wants a hot tub. It's been nice weather. And if you've got a garden, great. But they are unbelievably expensive. Yeah, exactly. I have to say, I think you would have to pay me the recommended retail price of an entire hot tub to get me to even dip a toe in one. The hygiene's quite questionable, isn't it? I think it's because it's been on lots of reality shows and there's been sort of like, if you see a string bikini and a glass of champagne in a hot tub, you, you know, you know to stay away. I don't know um, as well what happened, where it all went wrong culturally, that for the hot a tub. hot tub became synonymous with, like, luxury. Like, there was definitely a period on Come Dine With Me where there would be a very particular type of woman who thought that she was of, of a sort of different time, like she was sort of of a bygone Hollywood era, and it would get to the end of the main course and she would say, right, we've got a bit of a surprise for the profiteroles. If you come and join me outside, and then everyone's told they have to eat their profiteroles off a plate in a hot tub in her garden. <laughs> Do you want to hear my idea for a budget hot tub? An alternative? Buy a paddling pool, fill it up with warm water, and then put at least half a bottle of matey in it. What's matey? bubble bath that sounds very sexy (laughs) i didn't mean sexy moving on have you got any nice lockdown stories for me oh i do actually and this is also a plea to our listeners if anyone has any stories about new love in lockdown please do send them to us because i'm i cannot get enough of these stories and i've heard my favorite one so far which i got wind of on a zoom call last week where a friend told me that her friend So it's already been slightly weakened, the source, but it definitely happened. So this friend of a friend matched with a guy on a dating app at the beginning of lockdown, did a couple of weeks of Zooming really intensely every day. And then they were out of the sort of danger zone of quarantine where they'd been by themselves. So they would be safe after like two weeks and they were desperate to meet up. So uh, he moved into her flat and now they're living together obsessed that is wonderful is it wonderful or is it mental (laughs) oh no I like that I like that I really hope it works out for them my god that is a baptism of fire but look at some point lockdown will end and then one of them will just move out again yeah well maybe that's it now maybe that's it maybe it's not irreversible forever Speaking of um, of romance, thank you to everyone who wrote in to tell us what shift meant. Have you seen this, doll? 
Yes, lots of Irish girls messaged me. Kiss. It's a word for kiss. I think last week we were both baffled by the word shift and it is uh, slang for kiss in Ireland, which I love. So is that is that their version of pull? You know, when teenagers used to... Oh, yeah, pulling. Say you've pulled. Maybe. Must yeah. be you've shifted. I remember a friend of mine got it wrong and was really proud to tell me that she'd pushed someone. <laughs> It wouldn't be an episode of The High Love we didn't mention the normal people adaptation. I think you'll enjoy this from Ireland's Transport Minister, Shane Ross, whose childhood home, Marianne and Connell, kiss in, in the adaptation. Really? Yeah, he's quoted as saying, I think my parents would be absolutely mortified by what was going on in their house, which was a haven of morality. I think it's great myself. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. And I also read that one of the titles of David Hockney's paintings is And Remember, They Can't Cancel the Spring. I just think that's really lovely. Another reminder that nature ploughs on, quite literally. And did you see that that was used as the kind of thematic determiner of the, of I think it was last week's Grazia covers? It was absolutely beautiful. I read that quote in Grazia. Yeah, they got two fashion designers, actually, to draw illustrations of uh, Bloom, the spring Bloom. Um, Erdem did one and Richard Quinn did another. And then they had a a listener do another picture that she developed on... um, uh, I think she'd taken it on a phone. And they really were stunning covers. It's not often that I'm stopped in my tracks by a magazine cover. And um, I loved that. And do you know what I think is really interesting about this pandemic is obviously no one's been able to shoot anyone Mm. in the flesh. And Mm. I think it's really shown you don't need to. We don't always need to see a glamorous celebrity in a brand new image on a cover. Like, give me a black and white archive shot. Give me some flowers. I agree. I loved the I loved the concept of it and I think it was really powerful. It was a really powerful uplifting image and I think it was just like really innovative editorial thinking. I loved it. I wanted to talk about Lauren Bravo's piece on lockdown dickery. Did you read this panda? Yeah, I thought it was absolutely brilliant. She really summed up a mood which is that everyone feels quite frustrated with what someone else is doing. Yeah, it's so brilliant and something I've been thinking about a lot in the past few weeks because I'm finding I'm being particularly crotchety and that particularly my thought processes have become quite snide (laughs) since lockdown. Lauren Bravo uh, noticed the same and she wrote this brilliant piece that I'm going to quote from. Online, the potential for endless whataboutery is sending us back and forth like a furious pinball machine. You're a dick if you're having too nice a time in lockdown, posting your vases of peonies and elaborate gourmet dinners. But you're also a dick if you mock people who are simply looking for comfort to cling to. You're a dick if you complain when there are people worse off than you, apparently. But you're also a dick if you shame the complainer. It's Newton's third law of motion. For every dickish action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. The people flouting rules and risking lives are being dicks, but those gleefully policing other people's behaviour are also being dicks. The people who barrel down the middle of the pavements without respecting the two-metre rule are dicks, but then so am I for muttering obscenities at them as I make a big show of stepping into the road. The supermarket stockpilers are selfish dicks, but so are the people who haven't stopped to consider what the poor anxious stockpilers might be going through. Maybe, I announced to a friend the other day in a revelatory tone, everyone is just 30% more of a dick right now and we have to allow each other that margin. She goes on to speak to a psychologist 
who explains that this is a very kind of normal reaction. She says, when we feel threatened, our thought action repertoire diminishes. Our ability to be flexible, to be open, to be interested in novelty, to be social, all of those things diminish and we're only concerned with our own survival. We revert to fight, flight or freeze. But of course, you can't fight a virus and you can't run away from it. So those difficult emotions are finding other outlets. Lauren ends, so let's work on maintaining our sense of humour and cut everyone some slack, whatever their particular brand of dickheadery might be. The more I think about it, the more I decide this is the best idea I've had all lockdown. A 30% margin of mild obnoxiousness to be used however we choose. You're not allowed to slam me for being a dick, nor am I allowed to be a dick to you about your own dickishness. I hope that makes sense. And if it doesn't, feel free to keep the thought to yourself. I love that piece. And God knows I needed reminding of it over the last week. I had to dig very deep into my compassion and patience. (laughs) I think it's such a funny piece and I think it's spectacularly well observed. She's absolutely nailed what I thought was a nameless feeling, which is feeling like no one can do anything right, including yourself. And, you know, stay alert, guys. That's all I'd say. Just stay alert. Great. Understood. (laughs) I was very moved by the writer Emma Jane Unsworth, who wrote about finding your own terms amidst the chaos, uh, a time that she calls the busy board, which is such a good way of putting it. We're all really busy, but we're all really bored. And Mm -hmm. she specifically talks about how important it is to find pockets of quiet in a noisy, sad, angry time. Some days I need more quiet, deeper quiet, long quiet, quiet like a journey to the bottom of the sea. On those days, I avoid my phone. I give it to my husband to keep in his pocket. The first time I did this, I sprang back into action on my messages the following day, apologising to everyone for my radio silence, feeling guilty, negligent, even though I'd needed the break. My friend Jess said, don't apologise. You're not on call. This isn't a job. I thought that was uh, a really great reminder that everyone needs silence or quiet at different times and in different ways. And I wanted to see what you thought, Dolly, about uh, something Indian Ike calls cottagecore. Oh, what's that? She describes cottagecore as something that has found a large audience among young women on social media. A romanticised, nostalgic and unrealistic take on country life where a girl in gingham might, for instance, post a clip of herself making jam or pressing flowers or cuddling a lamb. It's sweet and silly, but its success does speak to something profound. It's true that living through this moment is made a great deal easier by having your own outside space and access to as much sky and fresh air as you like. But that's true of life generally, in my view. If your designated daily walk involves striding along a beach at a sunset or following footpaths along the field, your experience cannot be compared to that of someone stuck in a city flat, whether it is small and tatty or vast and glamorous. I also wonder if Londoners, now used to cleaner air, clearer skies and loud birdsong, will feel the trade-off was worth it when these things disappear again. Do you think lots of people will be desperate to move out of cities post-pandemic? Are you are you doing some cottage call? <laughs> Do you know what? I think it's it's so easy to kind of look at these like quite neat swings of of kind of anthropological trends and and predict them. But the fact is, I think this is going to be so debilitating for so many people in so many ways, like not just economically, but but emotionally, I, I think there will be like a serious convalescence period collectively for all of us, no matter how difficult or or easier it has been. And I think people are just going to be, I, I personally, whenever I read these pieces about like big new 
lifestyle trends we're going to see. I think people are just going to sort of be blinking into the sun, like very confused and and trying to make sense of it all. And obviously it needs to be stated that for many people, the idea of moving somewhere more remote or bucolic is a pipe dream because of the uh, reduced job opportunities there and the support networks, the care networks that um, a lot of people need in their family structure. But I do wonder if the yearning is greater even if we don't all move to a green field we will certainly as you as you kind of touch on we will certainly be considering different lives post-pandemic and I think the broadcaster Mariella Frostrup put it um really beautifully in her column on Sunday actually she says would we be living the dream quote-unquote if after losing so many of those we love enduring terrible financial hardship and cataclysmic job losses we turned around and went straight back to normal once the threat of the virus abated I'd be tempted to call this new awakening covidism as a mark of respect to those who have died and a way of reminding ourselves that their death should not be in vain. It's given us pause for thought, and if we've learned nothing from it, we really are a lost cause. I like the way she talks about covidism as being a uh, a sort of um, movement or a, a moment that causes us to change our lives out of respect for those that have passed away. Dolly, on to lighter things. What have you been enjoying this week? I've been watching Run and I'm loving it. Have you been watching Run? Yes, I have been watching Run. I'm glad you've been watching Run as well. Talk to me about Run. How many times can I say Run? I am quite surprised at how much I am loving it because, so the premise is it's about uh, a man and a woman, both in their late 30s, who dated 15 years previously so the last time they saw each other, I think they were 19. And I'm only on episode four and the backstory is kind of unraveling very slowly. So this is what I know about it so far. Don't worry, there aren't any spoilers. That they broke up when they were 19 and they obviously had some sort of pact, which meant in the future, if one of them texted the word run to the other, they didn't speak after they broke up. But if one of them got in touch just with the word run and the other person responded saying run, they had this... Uh, sort of Bonnie and Clyde getaway plan where they would meet at Grand Central Station and they'd go on an adventure together and they'd sort of fuck their lives. If I texted you run, obviously at the moment this is hypothetical because we can't physically go anywhere, but in another yeah. uh, uh, parallel world, if I texted you run, would would you run? Pandy, you're joking. I was watching this programme and I was like, I want to get a, I want to get a plan in place with someone that this is this is the fuck it escapist plan. So if you if you want it to be me, I'll be your girl. We text run. I'll meet you at Waterloo, and we'll where would run we go? Sunset together. <laughs> fuck knows. <laughs> the opportunities in the UK are slightly less expansive than they are in the states. I think the best thing about run as well is um didn't you just want to get on an overnight train and just like yeah, go across yeah, yeah. north america it's really yeah. i mean it's it's almost sort of trolling us a bit isn't it because it is really showing us what we absolutely can't have right now <laughs> i know so the reason i thought that when i first started watching it i was like don't know how much i'm going to warm to these characters is that it's the the story sort of focuses on their relationship and the intensity of their relationship and I think that's very hard to do compellingly 
you know, when it, you, when it's all kind of based around a couple who play tricks on each other and use power play and language is very important and there's this, like, intensity of connection. I think it's very hard to do authentically and it can make a viewer feel really isolated. Obviously, like, there are particular examples that nail it, like Closer by Patrick Marber does it so well or Who's Afraid of Virginia mm. Woolf by Edward Albee. You completely are entranced by that dynamic, but it takes, like really really deft characterization and dialogue to do it in a way that feels like not really navel gazy and just fucking annoying but they do manage it it's like it is really compelling and also they made that pact when they were much younger so the slightly discomforting uh but quite watchable element is that they their relationship is of their past selves isn't it so you see them kind of trying to shrug on who they used to be to each other while still holding on to who they are now. That's the thing I found most fascinating about it in that it goes into these like very big themes actually, which is like how much of us is frozen in time and how much of our former self just cannot be replicated or or reconnected. It's almost like kind of trying to cheat the laws of physics, watching them kind of trying to make sense of the fact that they both have these like very committed adult lives that are big and sprawling and involve lots of people now that are very separate from each other but there's also always going to be a part of their younger selves that exists and that is like eternally connected to each other and also the other reason why I think it's so good is it's looking at the actualization of a longing that I think so many people have irrespective of whether they're happy in their lives or not which is when you get into your you know late 30s unless you're like a real anarchist or a real hippie or a real like freewheeler everyone at that point is tied down in some way into whether it's like a career obligation or a family obligation or uh, a romantic commitment everyone at that stage of life is slightly fastened to the ground and I think every maybe not everyone I would say the majority of people at some point while while wading through the kind of daily routines of life has a thought of what would happen if I quit all of this and returned to the last time in my life when I felt truly free can that can that freedom of youth ever be replicated or do we do we age and know too much the writer of Run, Vicky Jones, who wrote Fleabag with Phoebe Waller-Bridge, and uh, Phoebe's an exec producer on Run, so they are still working together through their production company, Dry Write, but Vicky wrote this one on her own. And Vicky did an interview recently where she said that, you know, you read or watch a lot about men running away from their responsibilities, and the character of Ruby, played by Merritt Weaver, she wanted to challenge that. She wanted to look at what happens when a woman does that Uh, and that makes for a really interesting um, viewing I think I'm really enjoying it I'm watching it on now tv but I think you can watch it on sky as well can't you I feel like I'm watching on sky atlantic yeah what have you been reading this week panda I read a beautiful piece by the actor Rory Kinnear that has been shared widely this week and I wanted to mention here about his sister, Karina, who sadly died of coronavirus, aged 48. Before I continue, I want to say one thing. We are still very, 
much committed to bringing you uplifting content. We promised when the podcast came back after my maternity leave last month that that was our aim. And we still really want to keep our mentions of the pandemic that I know is consuming our every thought and anxiety to a minimum. And I did wrestle with whether or not I should recommend this piece because I knew it could make some people feel weightier or sadder. But I've decided to mention it because this show has always been about writing that makes us think, makes us feel, that stops us in our tracks. So before I discuss the piece or quote Rory's writing, I wanted to give a warning of sorts to anyone who can't handle someone else's sadness right now and who might be too consumed by their own, which is a very real and very valid thing. And to suggest that if that is the case, just skip on five minutes and I'll be chatting to Samantha about her essays. This is Rory writing about Karina and her life. Karina had suffered a lack of oxygen at birth that caused severe brain damage, had left her paralysed from the waist down after a life-saving operation on her spine aged 19, had been intubated and suffered kidney damage six years ago with sepsis, the last time we said our putative goodbyes to her, and was in hospital with chest infections regularly throughout her life. And yet every time, when you thought she couldn't possibly take any more, she defied us. Along with my mother's ferocious determination to keep Karina alive, she defied medicine, she defied doctors, she defied prognoses, she defied the capacity of human endurance. And she would look at you and smile as if to say, yep, I did it again. She was heroic and continually inspiring. In fact, she had a daredevil spirit, forever finding joy in activities many might have shied away from. When we were younger, she used to love fairground waltzers, despite the rest of us sating our search for thrills by hooking ducks waltz through we did and our terrified screams would compete to drown out her increasingly riotous chuckles she was also mischievous and even without language could tell you how much she appreciated the ridiculous early in the 1990s she started laughing every time the eastenders theme tune came on and we could never understand why so it was coronavirus that killed her it wasn't her quote-unquote underlying conditions Prior to her diagnosis, she hadn't been in hospital for 18 months, an unusually carefree period for Karina. No, it was a virulent, aggressive and still only partially understood virus that was responsible. No one could describe Karina as weak. She did not have it coming. She was no more disposable than anyone else. Her death was not inevitable, does not ease our burden, is not a blessing. She was vulnerable, yes. She needed the care of others to live. And I will remain forever grateful to the hundreds of caregivers who have, at one point or another, looked after her with such kindness and dedication, some of whom have maintained a relationship with her long after their retirement. I am grateful, too, to live in a country that makes provisions of care free to all, no matter one's need, however stretched and fraying their chronic underfunding increasingly makes them. I really encourage you, if you feel emotionally able, uh, to read the whole piece. It's a beautiful tribute to an energetic, lively woman who was his sister, who had many health issues, but who was not the sum of her health issues. Mm. And my thoughts and prayers are with anyone who's grieving right now. Thank you for sharing that, Panda. I saw a poem posted on the London Review of Books Instagram page the other day that I wanted to read to you, which is called Things Need Me by Charles Simic. And I think it's a great animist ode to a life of indoor living, uh, which we all know very well at the moment. Things need me. City of poorly loved chairs, bedroom slippers, frying pans, I'm rushing back to you, passing every car on the highway, searching for you with my bright headlights down the dark, empty streets. 
Oh, you heartless people who can't wait to go to the beach tomorrow morning. What about the black and white photo of your grandparents you are abandoning? What about the mirrors, the potted plants and the coat hangers? Dead alarm clock, empty birdcage, piano I never play. I'll be your waiter tonight, ready to take your order. And you'll be my mysterious dinner guests, each one with a story to tell. Just a nice sort of surrealist take on uh, living indoors, isn't it? I wanted to give a very quick roundup of the best podcasts I've listened to this week because there have been some absolute corkers in the iTunes store. Can I petition for you to do this every week? I quite like a podcast uh, roundup. Yeah, I'll do it because I listen to, as you know, I listen to so many. Podcast. Maybe it's it's best if I just do like a sort of quick fire uh, roundup of what I've listened to. So this week I have loved Tayari Jones on Open Book, who is an author I adore and whose book Silver Sparrow I spoke about uh, on the show last month. And she's talking about Silver Sparrow in this episode, what inspired the story, uh, how she creates characters that she can bear to spend years and years with when she's writing them. And she also does a beautiful reading from the book uh, to the soundtrack of a of an Aretha Franklin song, which kind of inspired the title of the book. And she's got just the most mellifluous, honeyed voice. I could uh, listen to her for hours. So I loved that. I loved Kate Blanchett on WTF, who does very, very little publicity. I've never heard her do a podcast interview before. I mean, she's fucking amazing it's like it's a great conversation mark maron who's normally quite uh quite truculent can be and and uh you know incredibly confident feels like slightly overpowered by her actually like she slightly her energy kind of dominates the conversation in a fucking cool way and there's this like very funny bit at the beginning that that any podcaster can uh, can really relate to in fact anyone who's having to do lots of zoom meetings and conversations at the moment can relate to where there are all these like tech fuck-ups at the beginning that they decide to keep in uh she talks about having a family in lockdown and she says she's now got to a point where they feel like they're all in sort of deep space together she talks about playing phyllis shafley in mrs america there's a big conversation about politics in america now and how how they got there she talks about her kind of insecurities and self-doubt as a performer really takes the piss out of mark maron in a way that you very rarely hear with his guests she's just incredibly sharp incredibly forthright and really really funny i completely fell in love with her in that interview you'll love it panda i'll definitely check that out i've always thought she's incredibly cool whenever i've uh, read interviews with her I loved Laura Marling on Adam Buxton, who, again, is a woman who doesn't give lots of kind of big mainstream interviews. So it feels like a real treat to listen to her. She is fascinating talking about her personal experiences with uh, hallucinogenics and microdosing and how it changed her ability to communicate and to create. I just found it such a fascinating conversation. And she does a couple of live performances from her new album, which is, as we've discussed before, very beautiful. I did just get a shiver at the thought of anyone doing hallucinogens whilst trapped in their own house. <laughs> I know, do not, do not try that at home. And finally, there's an archive episode of Fresh Air with Steve Martin that's just been made available again, which is just utterly charming, in which he talks about his early stand-up and his very unique brand of comedy and how he developed his performance style. So there is an array of audio treats for you next time you fancy some company in your ears. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Samantha Irby is an American blogger, comedian, and writer who has written for Screen and published three essay collections, Meaty, We Are Never Meeting in Real Life, and now her latest, Wow No Thank You, which has been praised by Gia Tolentino, Roxane Gay, and Candice Carty-Williams, amongst others. Personal essays that cover body image, the beauty industry, dating, and assholes quite literally, Irby's essays are a tonic for febrile times. I rang up Samantha to chat more about Wow No Thank You. Samantha, you're seeing out lockdown at home in Kalamazoo and you write a lot about relocating from the big smoke to the little smoke. Did you move to Kalamazoo just so you get to say that word every day? (laughs) I I wish. Um, No, I moved because my wife, we got married and I still lived in Chicago, which is maybe like the best way to be married in two different cities. <laughs> um, but, but I moved because, I mean, she lived here and had a house and all that good stuff. And also it sounds like it should be in a Dr. Seuss story, which I think is a good reason to move anywhere. I know. I couldn't even believe it was a real place. But yeah, <laughs> it's. I got here and I was like, oh, okay. We didn't have to go through a like Narnia portal to get to Kalamazoo. That's amazing. To introduce our listeners to Wow No Thank You, I wondered if you could read us a little extract from Girls Gone Mild, which is a tale of going out-out when you hit almost middle-age. I say almost middle-age because I just don't think 40 is middle-age anymore. I So for me, it's middle-age because I feel like I don't want to live to 100. Is that like bleak <laughs> to say... You know what I mean? I feel like when I, if, if, if I get to 80, I'll be like, okay. (laughs) I don't, um, I want people to live as long as they want to live. But for me, I'm like, you know, once I get to 80, I will be like, every night I'll go to sleep like, okay, let's let this be the last day. Um, You want want quality (laughs) over quantity. Yeah. My lady and I were out getting hammered at the local watering hole on a weeknight and feeling like cool olds when the waiter asked if it was mom's night out while offering to explain to us what whiskey is. And now I'm a corpse. Please bury me in my L.L. Bean comfort fleece. Me. Excuse me. I have tattoos, Jeff. Him. Oh my goodness, ma'am. I'm so sorry. I just saw the fluid collecting at your ankles and assumed, what the fuck is happening to my life? What vibe am I giving off? Yes, I am wearing soft, pull-on, straight-leg Gloria Vanderbilts, but I also have cool glasses and a motherfucking hand tattoo. Couldn't it just be middle school art teacher's happy hour, Jess? I should write a girls' night out movie, but a realistic one, 
featuring people my age who have neck pain and no cartilage in their knees and spend the entire movie trying to calculate how to split a check and figure out the tip across four different cards. Or two women with questionable credit try to rent a car on their way to a wellness retreat neither of them can afford, and the teenager behind the enterprise counter asks them to show nine different forms of identification. A group of friends goes on a wild Caribbean cruise, and when things get spicy, they get heartburn. That's the poster. I used to party a lot. The only reason I stopped is because I got too old to do it right. Also, I moved to a town where the most popular bar has a mechanical bull. (laughs) You first became famous for, quote-unquote, writing on the internet with your blog, Bitches Gotta Eat. Can you tell me a little bit about the impetus for creating the website? I am extremely sad, by the way, that the last update was in August. Uh, It was a long list of all the places in public that you've accidentally peed, and I enjoyed it immensely. Um, I guess you do have the excuse of writing a book, but yeah, can you tell me about why you started Bitches Gotta Eat and what you were doing um, at the time? Yes. So I, well, first of all, I have to say that the dilemma of like being a writer like I am is that every time something interesting happens, I think, should I put this on the blog or should I see if someone will pay to read this? But I should update my blog more and I will, I promise. Um, So I started the blog because uh, in like back in the MySpace days, there was uh, this dude that I wanted to date. Like we were talking and he was like, I'm really into writers. And I was like, you know, I don't know if I can write a whole manuscript uh, to impress this person, but I can uh, start a blog. So I started this little like MySpace blog just to like woo this one guy. And um, then like MySpace, you know, everyone defected and went to Facebook and I've shut it down. And my friends were like, well, we were all reading that. So you should like start a real blog. And I had I didn't even know that that was a thing you could do. Um, so my friend Laura set the whole thing up and like told me how to do it. And so I just started writing it like just to make my friends laugh. And then other people started reading it. And like, you know, I'm an egomaniac. So once people were giving me feedback that they liked it, I couldn't stop. (laughs) So I just, I kept doing it. So you didn't end up with the guy that you started Bitches Gotta Eat for, but you have written three very successful books. So on balance, he was pretty worth it. Yes, we did date. I did convince him to go out with me and then it flamed out in spectacular fashion. But yes, I, I think I won. I mean, <laughs> we're not counting winners and losers, but we are counting winners and losers. And I think I, think I won. <laughs> That's a very good essay title. We're not counting winners yeah. and losers, but we are. Like, we all know we are. <laughs> yeah, we are. I don't, no shame in that. It's okay to, like, have your, your secret uh, scorebook. Your essays are extremely scatological. You write about the everyday reality of suffering from Crohn's disease, which saw you wearing a nappy to go speed dating, and the Mm. menstrual history that led to you getting a hysterectomy. And your essays really challenge the 
ancient cultural diktat that says that women should not be vulgar, that their bodies and the workings of their bodies should be tucked neatly out of sight. In your writing, is that something you really strive to overcome? Yes. I don't want to act like, you know, fart jokes are noble, but I will say that for me, there was like a freedom because like of the reality of my body, right? It's like, I can't escape it. And if people are going to be in my life, they won't be able to escape it either. I can't hide it. And it's so much work to hide. I mean, truly anything, but especially something like I have to go to the bathroom all the time or that crinkling you hear is this diaper I'm wearing. So I decided to just kind of write openly about it just to make my life easier, just to be like, hey, if you're meeting me, you know what's up. Let We can skip past all of the, oh, I'm so sorry, or I'll be in the bathroom for 20 minutes. We can jump right into, we can jump right past that and get into like being friends. Um, and then I would get feedback from people who were like, hey, I'm going through the same thing. Thanks for talking about it. It makes me feel better to know that you're out there living with it and talking about it. And that's why I've continued to do it because I do feel free enough to. And if that makes somebody else feel better, then I'm willing to, you know, potentially (laughs) embarrass myself. But ultimately, like talking about all that kind of stuff really just like lifts a burden from me. And I understand people who can't, like people who I understand, like pretending you never poop and you don't get your period or it's never a mess or all that stuff. Like there are people who can live like that. I just, I refuse to. Is there an element of catharsis to your writing? And and I ask that tentatively because I know a lot of women when they write personal um, essays or memoir find it quite frustrating when people suggest that the only reason they're writing is for catharsis. Because obviously it's, a, it's an art in itself what you're doing. But is there, when you're writing about, you know, a chronic disease that's caused you so much pain, is there a way of kind of exorcising um, the weightiness of that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my, it, it, I wouldn't do it if it didn't, um, that's very nice of you to call what I do an art. Cause I, you know, I don't take anything <laughs> it is. seriously. I just, I, I'm just like, oh, it's just jokes. Um, but no, it does make me feel better and it does bring me relief. I mean, I understand the trope of like silent suffering and, you know, holding it all in and like being a martyr, but that is not me. I want to get it out. I want (laughs) to work it out. And like, I feel like once it's out, then I can like let go of it and move on. So yeah, it has been super cathartic for me. When you married your wife, Kirsten, she came with a couple of kids. You write, I think, in a way that few people write about being a step-parent. There's the pressure to love the children of someone you love, but you write, you're actually largely indifferent and that you really hope they don't look to you for advice. How did you negotiate the somewhat delicate dance of writing about someone else's family? But they're sort of your family now too. So I made a deal with them they would love it if I put their names pictures and like social security numbers in 
my books, but I made a deal. My worst nightmare is like 10 years from now, one of them coming to me and being like, listen, you ruined my life by putting details about me in your book and I can never forgive you and you can never take it back. So I made a deal with them that I would only write about my experience being around them, like the stuff that I own, you know, my feelings mm -hmm. and my reactions and stuff. And I would never uh, expose them or write, you know, like write anything too detailed about them. Um, it's, and I, I mean, Kirsten knew what she was getting into, but we, <laughs> when we met, you know, like, and she's fair game. Like, she's just like, whatever you say about me, you know, I want to read it before it goes to print. But <laughs> she never, she never objects. She never says, like, take that out or I don't drink that much kombucha or whatever. However, I'm slandering <laughs> her. <laughs> but the kids, I do, like, you know, I had a bad childhood and I don't want to contribute to anyone else's. So I, tr I really try to just inventory myself and how I'm feeling about things and kind of leave their specific details out. And now when they hit 18, if I'm still doing this and they're like, okay, let me have it, then maybe, maybe I'll get into that. But for now, also, I mean, the truth of it is like there's, I, I respect them, but also like kids are boring and you don't care. You know what I mean? Like, you don't care. No one really cares about, like, what these kids do or think or say. <laughs> or say. I'm like, listen, if you guys want to tell your side, you grow up and get a book deal. But for now, this is about me. <laughs> <laughs> you are extremely honest in your writing. One essay, Are You Familiar With My Work, is all about a time you thought someone recognised you because they asked if you were from Chicago and then your subsequent mortification and interrogation of how you could have assumed this. How easy is it to write about your increasing level of reputation and let's be honest, fame, whilst simultaneously becoming more famous and then at the same time looking at how much you hate yourself for <laughs> analysing your growing fame. I, I feel like the core part of me, the like anxious, nervous, self-hating part of me is, is never going to truly go away. And so I feel like I, because I filter everything through that lens and I never take myself too seriously, I think that's that will be, you know, as my profile grows and I continue to do this kind of work, I am extremely humble is the wrong word, but I just don't take anything, including myself super seriously and so my work will always be grounded in you know this is dumb I messed this up I can't believe I did that I don't ever get this right um <laughs> like that doesn't change and I can't see it changing for me you know even as like I get more well known like that kind of stuff doesn't change the self-hatred like the place that I write from so I think the work I mean we'll see if I write another book we'll see if it stays the same also I feel like I didn't really answer this question correctly <laughs> Speaking 
self-hatred i'm like there are no right or wrong answers she asked me to spiral (laughs) did she ask me to spiral about how much i hate myself oh sorry (laughs) it's a weird it's a weird time for everyone do not worry is there anything (laughs) off limits um i mean the details of my friends and family's lives yes like anything I have written about another person, I always get a sign off. I send it to whoever I've written about before I even send it to my editor. I would never, ever jeopardize a personal relationship just for like the cheap thrill of publishing it. So yeah so anybody's detail like i try to keep even if i tell a story about that involves someone else i try to keep it centered on myself you know i'm my biggest target um but i would never jeopardize a friendship or relationship with someone by like you know blindsiding them (laughs) with something i've written i think you manage that tension really well um the only person that you're sending up is yourself (laughs) and you do that magnificently meaty is currently being developed for comedy central which must be hugely exciting when can we expect to see it and how has the process of adapting a very personal body of work for television been um so the pandemic has kind of thrown everything off we were supposed to shoot a pilot this summer but now everything is kind of in indefinite hold uh until we can all be together so i'm not sure when but the process it's true if i think about it too hard it freaks me out uh so i've had to develop this Like, I really think of the TV project as being about someone else who just has my same name um, and similar experiences to me and not me. I mean, it obviously helps that I won't be in it and I'm writing uh, for another person to play me. Uh, But it's scary. So many more people watch TV than read books. And like the fictional, it's much easier for me to just write um, about myself for an audience who knows what I do and cares about me and is like along for the ride. I feel less protective of and sensitive about that, like my real self, than I do about creating this fictionalized version that'll reach more people it's a trip. And like, I've, I've written for other people's TV shows, even like shows like Shrill was about Lindy. And I worked on this show, Work in Progress, that's about the main character, Abby McEnany. Um, and like, those feel personal to me, even though like, they're, they're about heightened versions of someone else. But writing the character of myself is, it's, it's so stressful and I, it makes me so nervous in a way that I am not nervous about writing about myself in books. And I just hope that, uh, that people like it <laughs> and that what we are trying to do comes across. So there's an added vulnerability for you 
writing for television? Yeah, yeah. It it feels so much higher stakes than the the books do. You know, I don't know how to describe, I don't have the words to describe why, but and maybe it's just because the reach of TV is so much bigger and people talk about TV shows more and like debate what happens week to week on a show much more than they do about, a, you know, over a book. Um, but it does, it does like make me feel like super sensitive and nervous at the thought of people watching it as opposed to people reading my books well i can't wait to watch it thank you so much for speaking with me samantha wow no thank you is out now and it is the perfect reading about an absurdist every day that we used to know and may with any luck know once again thank you this was so great Thank you for that brilliant interview, Pandora, and thank you so much to the wonderful Samantha Irby for sparing some time to speak to us on the high-low. And thank you, our darling listeners, for listening to the high-low. You can get in touch with us by emailing show at gmail.com. You can tweet us at show. In the last week, the man who dubbed himself both the king and queen of rock and roll passed away, Little Richard. He was and will continue to be one of the most influential musicians of all time and changed how musicians sound and how musicians move and perform and how musicians dress. Mark Maron, I think, put it best when I heard him say on WTF this week, there would be no rock and roll without Little Richard. So it's goodbye from us and goodbye from Little Richard. Goodbye. Bye-bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.